Welcome to episode 52, another special edition of Primary Care Update, where we're going to focus exclusively on COVID-19 research, part of our plan to do more frequent interim podcasts on the uh, pandemic. I'm Mark A. Bell, a family physician and professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. I'm John Hickner, family physician and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Family Practice, and I want to give a shout out to all the fathers out there with Father's Day coming up this next Sunday. Hi, I'm Henry Barry, a family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPoems. So this podcast is brought to you by Essential Evidence, where you get a poem every day, plus a great primary care reference with over 800 disease and symptom chapters and thousands of interactive decision support tools. Check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. The opinions expressed on Primary Care Update are those of the commentators, and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. We have a lot to cover this month. Steroids, non-drug approaches, a review of the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in kids, another study on mortality and race, asymptomatic COVID, and a report from the CDC on factors related to hospital and ICUs among patients with COVID-19. First, a quick update from Henry. Hi. Yeah, we wanted to let you know that the study that we reviewed two episodes ago on hydroxychloroquine harms that were published in Lancet, uh, Lancet has actually withdrawn that study owing to the fact that, quote, several concerns were raised with respect to the veracity of the data and analyses, end quote. Um, that means that they think that there may have been some fraud involved in the re original research. Now, first point is that this retraction in no way reflects on the veracity of all of the other papers that have evaluated hydroxychloroquine and macrolide antibiotics. So any of these uh, studies, we've seen overwhelming evidence that they do not do any benefit, and they're associated with this increased risk of death and serious cardiovascular um, um, events. So those studies are still valid. We've also become aware of a paper published in the New England Journal that we did not cover, by the way. Uh, that paper reported a lack of association between ACE inhibitors and ARBs uh, commonly used for hypertension and heart failure and mortality. Uh, it turns out that both of these studies were written by the same author, but were published in two highly reputable jour journals. And again, um, not, none of these studies really presented any data that were at odds with any of the other existing um, studies, other than they reported much larger sample sizes. So, you know, we've cautioned about interpreting studies that have not yet been through peer review. And, and in the case of both of these studies, they had been peer reviewed. Here's the sad thing, though is that the peer review process and the editorial processes are generally not capable of de detecting fraud. So we have to be careful and be aware that there is some of this that's out there. And in our haste to get some of this information out, some things fall through the usual regulatory cracks. Yeah, and <clears throat> we've been pretty cautious about using preprints, and that includes uh, some of the original uh, remdesivir trial. We reported that based on essentially a press release. And here we go again. <laughs> it was a trial <laughs> released yesterday. And and I, we again, that was from a the, the remdesivir, the ACT trial was federally funded, a respectable group of researchers, not some random dude who comes out of nowhere, which is the case with this Lancet trial. And this is from Oxford University, from their Nuffield Center, which is essentially their medical school. And it's the recovery trial funded by the uh, UK National Institute for Healthcare Research. They recruited 11,500 hospitalized patients with COVID-19, and they randomized them to one of six arms, azithromycin, lopinavir, ritonavir, 
Kilizumab, uh, convalescent plasma, low-dose dexamethasone, uh, or usual care. So this announcement is reporting the results from the comparison of low-dose dexamethasone, 6 milligrams once daily for 10 days in 2,100 patients, compared to 4,300 patients who were randomized to usual care with no additional intervention. The primary outcome was 28-day mortality. The risk ratio for mortality in patients who were on a vent was 0.65 and was statistically significant. And for those getting oxygen but not on a vent was 0.8, again, statistically significant. So about a 35% reduction in mortality on a vent and 20% on oxygen. No benefit was seen for patients who didn't require oxygen or mechanical ventilation, but who were hospitalized. So if you apply those risk ratios to the overall mortality rates in the usual care groups, you come up with mortality of about 27 versus 41%, which is an NNT of seven. And for those getting oxygen, but not an event, about 20 versus 25% mortality, NNT of about 20. So they don't give us any data in these press releases from Oxford University on patient demographics, harms, complications, uh, effect on time to recovery. Uh, There was another report that said there was no increase in other infections, which is a concern when you give steroids to somebody who has a a lung infection. Uh, So we still wait for the full report, but this suggests that there's now a second um, effective, proven effective treatment in addition to remdesivir, which is corticosteroids, six milligrams dexamethasone once a day for 10 days for patients requiring oxygen or on a vent. Henry? Yeah, I have uh, two points. And maybe the first point is more of a gripe than a point. And that's that this practice of press releases is not a new practice. And it has always annoyed me. Our listeners recognize that the three of us like to actually read and digest these papers ourselves. And we often don't have that chance because patients are going to show up on Friday afternoon asking, hey, is this right for me? Um, And we've not even had a chance to tell. The the second point that I really want to make is that we have to underscore that this is a very specific population of patients with COVID. These are the patients who were in the ICU on ventilators where this made a difference. The big question is, what can we do other than advise our patients not to be in a high risk group when they come down with COVID-19? What can we do to prevent a decline into a serious state? That answer has not been, yeah, that, that those data we don't have yet. Yeah, and they're very clear on that, and they're very clear in saying this does not apply to outpatients. This does not apply to patients who are not on oxygen, and so they're very careful to, you know, sort of circumscribe their their recommendation. Any thoughts, John? Nonetheless, this is very good news for those who do get seriously ill. This is an inexpensive treatment that looks like it's probably just as uh, just as effective as remdesivir. So, so very good news if the paper comes out peer-reviewed and confirms these findings. Yeah, and it'd be interesting, you know, at some point, probably we're going to see studies of, uh, maybe if I could imagine a factorial trial of remdesivir versus placebo, or remdesivir versus remdesivir plus steroid to see if there's any additional benefit, you know, those kind of trials to get the best combination. For now, probably people are going to be using both, uh, presume, assuming that the published report uh, bears this out. Next study is an econ- econometric study. So my sister is an e- economist, works for the British government, actually. And this was from a bunch of economists and public health experts who are primarily at UC Berkeley. They took econometric methods, and I do not pretend to have any expertise on this, 
Uh, but I tried very hard to read the paper and plow through it. And they generally use these. And this was published in The Lancet, by the way. And it was also published in, in tandem with a study that took more traditional epidemiologic methods. And this is the kind of, they apply these methods to uh, whether raising the minimum wage increases unemployment, things like that. So they're comparing sort of natural experiments that might be going on. And they apply these to the question of whether these policy changes affect a different kind of growth which is that of COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, They had data from 1,700 administrative units, so cities, counties, states, in six different countries, including the U.S. They estimated a daily growth rate of 43% overall in new cases in the absence of any measures, uh, and ranges from 34% in the U.S. to 68% in Iran. Their econometric modeling concludes that implementation of all policy measures So things like school closures, social isolation, travel bans resulted in reductions in the rate of growth of cases with larger reductions in some countries, Iran, China, South Korea, and Italy, and smaller reductions in the U.S. and France. They do estimate that uh, these reductions in those six countries reduced the total number of uh, confirmed cases by 60 million and reduced the number of confirmed cases in the U.S. by about 5 million. And if you assume only about one in 12 are actually confirmed, that's up to 60 million uh, cases among people who were never confirmed or were asymptomatic or had mild illness. So these estimates are consistent with the epidemiologic modeling, consistent with lots of other stories, and uh, really uh, puts adds more uh, weight behind the recommendation that these um, measures are important. You know, I've been I think I mentioned this before, I've been tracking the measures in Michigan, which were started earlier and were enforced more rigorously. And we see declining deaths, cases and hospitalizations, very steady decline. And if you look at Georgia, where uh, there were they were implemented later and there was less adherence, the number of cases, deaths and hospitalizations has remained flat, which is not good. So anyway, this is, uh, again, we're probably going to stop talking about this. Uh, NPIs, these non-pharmaceutical interventions, because I think we're hopefully all on board with that now. But any any final thoughts on that, John? The science is very clear, I think, Mark. What What's not clear is, at least in the United States, people's will to use these measures that are effective. As we see the rise in COVID cases in over 20 states at this late time in the pandemic, it's clear that many people just are simply not willing to take these measures. They're I guess, willing to put up with the high uh, death rate and all the other complications, but uh, it's a matter of public will. Yeah. And it's, it, it depends on where you are. You know, I'm in a part of Michigan where there have been very, very few cases and you can understand people's reluctance, you know, at the same time, even in urban areas in um, uh, larger cities where uh, there are more cases and, and cases are, are ongoing, uh, there's, you know, kind of variable adherence to wearing a mask and it's uh, uh, and some of those other distancing measures. Certainly the bars opened up in Athens, Georgia uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they were packed with students, packed with students, cheek by jowl, as they say. And so, um, yeah, I think it's going to be, uh, I think we're probably most likely in for a steady, trick, not trickle, but a steady stream of um, new cases uh, moving well into the fall and, and the winter. Henry? 
Yeah, so these modeling studies are fascinating, and it's reassuring that we're getting many different models that are coming up with comparable kinds of conclusions. The piece that I think is missing from this and may be from the others is if you put immunizations into the puzzle, what happens with all of these other assumptions? Immunization against COVID-19 or... Yeah, if or any other condition. So if, let's say if we were to apply the same kind of model to a condition like influenza, uh, where you. we have an effective vaccine, what what do we what have we learned from those kinds of things? Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see what other what impact COVID nineteen has on other infections. On um, you know, will we see uh, the same number of flu cases as we normally do? Will the fact that there are still people are going to be more cautious? Uh, will that reduce the number of flu cases? Hopefully, we can see people getting their flu vaccine this fall. Uh, it's not being mandated on our college campus. Purdue University just said they're mandating it. Uh, they're mandating face masks within classrooms at Purdue. Uh, University of Georgia is not. In fact, we're not allowed to. Uh, so there, there's a lot of variability in the implementation. All right, Henry, I think it's time for your updates. Yeah, so the first update that I have is about this multi-system inflammatory syndrome that affects children. You've heard about it on the news. And this is actually a threefer. This I'm summarizing data from three different studies that were all published within the last couple of weeks. Uh, they All of them share some common features. They audited the medical records of children who were hospitalized in New York, France, and in England. Uh, yeah, they had some differences in what they reported, but we still got a pretty good gist of what um, uh, how this syndrome manifests. So overall, they identified about 96 kids, uh, 40% were black, 84% had lab-confirmed COVID. It turns out that about a third also met the criteria for Kawasaki syndrome. Uh, or Kawasaki disease. Two of the studies reported that just over a third of the children had gastrointestinal symptoms. The other uh, study reported specific symptoms like abdominal pain and vomiting and diarrhea, which occurred. It looks like a, also roughly about a third of the children. Uh, 60% had a rash, uh, but only two of the studies reported desquamation, peeling and, and sloughing of skin, and that happened in roughly a quarter of the children. Uh, conjunctivitis did not occur all that often, only about 5%. And just under um, half also had redness or swelling of the lips and mucous membranes. And then from complications, uh, uh, just over 10% had dilation of the coronary arteries, about a quarter had myocardial dysfunction, and about 60% actually were in shock. So I don't know about you guys, but I'm still baffled how to distinguish this condition from Kawasaki disease. Yeah, and I'm curious what the denominator is, because presumably this is still quite rare. I mean, we we you know, if it took three case reports to get 96 children from three different countries, you know, maybe it's relative, it seems like, to, like it's a relatively rare phenomenon with the vast majority of kids having asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection. But yeah, it's, is it, is there a, are they treating it with steroids or was there anything about that? There was absolutely nothing about the steroids uh, or about any other treatment. They just reported what happened to the kids. And as you can imagine, in early days, it was like the kitchen sink. Everybody was throwing everything they could think of at these kids mm -hmm. and hoped that something would stick. Yeah. Interesting. John? 
This may eventually be classified as just another kind of Kawasaki's. So we need more experience yet, but my guess is that might be the outcome. Yeah, makes sense. One more cause of it. Um, And you have another poem talking again about uh, mortality uh, in uh, Blacks, Asians, and other minorities in the UK. Yeah, so uh, two episodes ago, I think it was two episodes ago, John reviewed a study from Louisiana that uh, really tried to take into account socioeconomic factor. And when you did that, that the um, racial differences in mortality went away. If I'm, I think I'm reporting that correctly. And John, you can correct me in just a moment. So what these researchers did was they took the United Kingdom's National Health System data set and identified people who died from while hospitalized from COVID-19. And then they compared that to the entire English population as a reference. And then they tried to adjust for mortality based on age and geographic region. And what they found was that the mortality rates were the lowest among white patients, even lowest among white Irish and uh, white ethnic groups. And it was highest among black African, black Caribbean, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, and Indian groups. So this was interesting because in a nation that's got universal health care coverage, it looks like socioeconomic factors are still important predictors of adverse health outcomes. And to me, it also means that a systematic medical system alone is not adequate for overcoming, overcoming the social determinants of health. John? These findings are not at all inconsistent with the study that I reported from Louisiana Recall that in that study, the denominator was patients with COVID and that the mortality rate uh, when adjusted for socioeconomic factors was no different in blacks than it was with whites. In this case, the denominator is the entire English population. What this means is that the percent of black people, for example, uh, who got COVID was much higher And they probably were more likely to get COVID related to socioeconomic factors, such as crowded living, uh, working in jobs that they had to do. They couldn't stay home and do an office job from their house. So this is not surprising. And again, it is consistent with data from the Louisiana study. Yeah, and it also depends on what they were able to adjust for. And it looks like they adjusted for age and geographic region, but not for um, a number of the other factors that were adjusted for in the uh, Louisiana study. Anyway, interesting. And uh, thank you for that. Uh, John, I think you were going to close us out with a couple more COVID-19 updates. Yes, uh, here we go. First is a narrative review that quantifies the proportion of people with COVID-19 infections who are asymptomatic at the time of testing. This summary includes 16 cohorts of COVID-19 positive individuals from Iceland, Italy, Greece, France, Japan, Argentina, and the United States, and they included the four ship outbreaks that we know of. The cohorts ranged in size from quite small, 76 to quite large, 13,000 individuals. The percent of people who tested positive who had no symptoms at the time of testing ranged from a low of 6.3% in those nursing home patients in King County, Washington, to highs of 88% of the occupants in a Boston homeless shelter 
88% of an obstetric service in New York City, and 96% of 3,146 inmates who tested positive in the state systems in Arkansas, North Carolina, Ohio, and Virginia. So very high percent of asymptomatic patients. Now, these were not necessarily representative, but three of the cohorts had a fairly representative sample that was almost a, a random sample, not quite. But in those populations, the rates of an asymptomatic infection were in the 40 to 45% range. As we've noted in the study of infector-infective pairs in China, transmission from asymptomatic individuals may account for approximately 40% of cases. Therefore, once again, quarantine alone is insufficient to prevent spread, and social distancing and use of face masks are very important preventive measures. Mark? Yeah, and there was also, I think, a report from a uh, the Theodore Roosevelt, the USS Theodore Roosevelt, where very high percentage of those uh, young sail, mostly young sailors who were infected were asymptomatic. So it seems like asymptomatic infection is uh, much more common in younger cohorts and less common in older groups. And with sort of an average, if you have general population with all ages of around 40%. So that's higher than it was initially thought. I think the initial estimates were about 20% asymptomatic. But I think as we've done more testing, it's clear that now that's probably higher than that. So very interesting stuff. Henry? Yeah, I think your your main point is around testing. And when you are doing very selective testing, the data are nearly meaningless in terms of what's the rate of asymptomatic infections. And as we get more systematic, we'll have much better data. And again, I've said this before, a year from now, we'll probably know what the truth is, or a year after the outbreak is, is over. Now, we do have a little bit of good news. We haven't uh, actually reviewed this paper yet. It may be something we review coming up. But there's a paper in JAMA that identified about 90-some people with asymptomatic COVID-19 infections. They actually were hospitalized and followed and uh, were turned loose when they had um, uh, tested negative. Uh, 90%, it seems, were never actually became ill. And so that's the good news for the individuals. The bad news is that they do serve as a repository for infection for the rest of us. Yeah, and that's what's going to make the it difficult because it's it it's hard, it, it behaves differently than other infections, and that asymptomatic spread, it, like you said, the distancing and the face masks are more important for this than for other infections where there's a more rapid symptomatic response and less of a presymptomatic uh, or asymptomatic uh, component to it. John, I think you have one more poem for us. Yes, we've talked about the higher risk for patients who have chronic illness, and we have now a report from the Center for Disease Control that summarizes COVID-19 cases that were reported to the CDC from January 22nd through May 30th. There were 1,761 cases, I'm sorry, 1,761,000 cases reported and 103,700 deaths during that time interval. The seven-day average number of cases peaked in the United States on April 12th at 31,996 cases, and daily deaths peaked on April 21st at 2,856. Just for comparison, I looked at the figures yesterday. We had 24,832 cases on a seven-day average, and the seven-day average of deaths was 769, so clearly we have a ways to go. 
At any rate, the CDC had sufficient information on about 300,000 individuals with COVID-19 infection to report the outcomes of patients with and without chronic diseases. Cardiovascular disease was present in 32% of the cases, diabetes in 30%, chronic lung disease in 18%. Of all patients with COVID-19 reported to the CDC during this time period, 14% of patients were hospitalized, 2% were admitted, and 5% of patients died. Now, the most important thing from this study, I think, is that the hospitalization rate was six times higher among patients with chronic disease. That is 45% versus about 8%. And the death rate in patients with chronic disease was 12 times higher, 20% versus 1.5%. So these patients with chronic illnesses are at enormous risk of hospitalization and death compared to the general public. Thanks, John. Uh, I don't have anything to add, but Henry, do you have any final comments? Um, you know, the, the, in some ways, COVID-19 is similar to almost any other disease that you care to, uh, to name, other than the magnitude. If you think about who's likely to have a bad outcome, I can quote Claude Rains, uh, the Louis Renault character in uh, Casablanca. You round up the usual suspects, age, chronic illnesses, sociodemographic factors, and those are the things that are almost always going to be associated with bad outcomes. Wisely said. And John, you're going to close the podcast today with a quote from a Polish-American scholar. Yes, this is Alfred Korzybski, and here it is. There are two ways to slide easily through life, to believe everything or to doubt everything. Both ways save us from thinking. Great one. I love that. And by the way, his best known dictum is one widely known to us, and that is, the map is not the territory. <laughs> I love that one. Well, thanks, you guys. Uh, appreciate the conversation and the insights. Uh, hope everybody listening enjoyed today's discussion. Uh, spread the word, rate us on iTunes, and we'll talk to you soon with more primary care updates. <laughs>